This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. We're going to round out the life of Luther real quick. Um, we stopped in 1517 to just do everything we did and how Luther is trying to overturn uh, this understanding of scholastic theology which promotes a view of human nature where it is very powerful, very free, absolutely free, um, and God is as well. Um, later on in 1517, on October 31st, probably know he posts the 95 theses um, and this ends up being well this is an understatement it ends up being a big deal <laughs> <laughs> we'll, uh, we're gonna skip over the 95 theses for the moment because that's what we'll do later in the afternoon um, 1518 and here I'm following Bayer this is one of these times where we see a clear instance of um, Luther's understanding of promise breaking through. Um, in 1518, this guy named Kajetan, or you can pronounce it a number of different ways, he sent to Augsburg, he's a cardinal, he sent to Augsburg to examine Luther to make sure that this guy is still okay because he's just posted these things about indulgences, he's making a name for himself. We need to figure him out. Um, Kajetan was an extremely smart guy. Can you put that, uh, oh, spell yeah. that name, please? Extremely smart guy. He's a scholar of uh, Aquinas. And he is the one that's sent here to take care of this. And it's unfortunate because after this event in Augsburg, Kajetan doesn't want to, to do this stuff anymore. He's a scholar. He's an academic. He wants to be with his books working on Aquinas. So he goes back and does that. And after him, Rome really started sending the B team. <laughs> like um, The people that Luther is dealing with afterwards are just not always the most upright or the most academically rigorous people. So I see this as sort of a, it's a pity that someone like Kajetan couldn't have been the person always leading because once we get on to someone like John Eck things really get nasty um, so I just note that to say like you kind of wonder how the Reformation could have went a little bit better if you have your extremely smart people dealing with this and that's just a that's just a quirk of history I think why didn't Rome I mean why why did they send the B team after this point if well, he was yeah. such a threat you think they'd want to decimate him? Yeah, and the, here we have the gift of hindsight, of right. course. Right, he knows the threat. Well, yeah, they, they didn't fully get what was going to go on or happen with Luther, and also, it, it was the, it's the B team in my eyes because I, John Eck writes this thing of 404 theses where he's refuting all of this new um, Lutheran teaching. And it's just a bunch of garbage. Um, but he, he was one of the, you know, he was part of the power. He was part of the structure. So for them to send someone like Eck, that's just a natural, that's a natural move. He was a professor um, 
at a major university in Ingolstadt. So he, he wasn't a schmuck, but it's just compared to what could have been maybe. It's just too bad. Um, why uh, speculate, if you would? I mean, why would, if he had stayed with Kajitan, what would have been produced from that kind of dialogue, you think? More substance, less smoke. Okay. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of smoke in these events where Luther is disputing or being tried by someone sent um, from the church. And often it just doesn't come to the real thing, whether, whether Luther wasn't communicating clearly enough or they just weren't trying to understand. It seems like a lot of times you're just missing each other. Um, and if the substance were there, what do you think it would have yielded for the Reformation? It might have just ended up the exact same way. Like there's a, there's a very real chance that, that that would have been the case. Because even, I mean, we'll get down in 1519, um, Luther has a, has a debate with this guy named John Eck, who's the professor at Ingolstadt, um, would have been looked upon as, you know, as a very smart guy. Um, and Eck gets Luther to admit that indulgences isn't the real issue, but the issue is the authority of the church. So even a guy like him, who I think is a numbskull, eventually got around to the issue. Um, I guess what I throw out there about Kajitan is we just don't know. It could have ended the exact same way, but you just always wish that um, you had like the, the, the best and the brightest. Because I think the, the Lutheran Reformation really did. It was always throwing Luther or Melanchthon um, and, and all these names are blanking on me now. A lot of good people. And it just didn't always feel like they were being matched on the other side. Um, which you don't have to match because the other side had all of the power and the authority and uh, they were under their jurisdiction. So, were, I don't know this at all. Were they divided? Because they had the... You know, there was Germany in the middle and then of course on the to the east, the Turks were pressing in, and to the west, they were trying to expand in the New World. Was the best and the brightest, were they divided? And they, were, they had to go to different fronts, as it were? Yeah. Um, that, that's a good point, especially when, we, um, when you have these meetings in Augsburg and, and whatnot, and when Luther goes before um, the emperor later in Worms, the, yeah, they're not the major issue. Like the, the first issue that the emperor has to worry about is, are we going to get ransacked by the invaders? So a lot of resources and brain power that could have been devoted to figuring this out just had to be sent elsewhere. And it's called him a drunk monk in Germany. Yeah. Yeah, why would you, why would you worry about this, this random guy when we have barbarians coming to take us? So... That's, that's, a, that's a good point to bring up, for sure. Um, so, we have this event in Augsburg with Luther and Kajetan. And Kajetan wants Luther to recant. Luther says no. Um, and then Luther has to escape under the cover of darkness. This is the first time that will happen. And it will happen a handful of other times in Luther's life. Um, just to make sure that he stays safe. I mean, at this time, he writes a thesis or a treatise that's called 
for the inquiry into truth and for the comfort of troubled consciences, uh, which I think is a great title. And it, it's, it's another one of these examples of how his theology is shifting because about this time you get the notion of promise coming through. So if we make a distinction, this is a, a classic distinction between a sign that signifies something else and a sign being the thing itself. If you hold that distinction in your mind, it's, it's really important for how Luther breaks with the system of penance. Um, so in, in the Catholic Church, when you went to confess your sins and you were absolved, when the priest said to you, te absolvo, I absolve you, that word was not doing anything. It was signifying, it was pointing to something that was already the case. Because you had confessed your sins and God would forgive you. So you're just pointing to a thing that actually already is. Luther's notion of promise, which really breaks from this, is he says, when the priest says, I absolve you, that word is actually doing the thing it says. Does that make sense? Okay. So that, that is the break. Um, he calls it a, a verbum efficax, an efficacious word, a word which does what it says. Um, and it's a kind of word that can't, it's not going to be verified independently. Nothing is propping up this word, making it work. Um, it's not pointing to anything else because it is doing the thing itself. And that is sort of a, a bit of a linguistic revolution in Luther's thought, um, moving away from Augustine a little bit. It's very key in his um, understanding of the sacraments because when you have this declarative word that happens in baptism or in the Lord's Supper itself, Luther says it's actually happening there. You're actually being forgiven and cleansed in baptism. You're actually receiving forgiveness in the body and the blood and the Lord's Supper because God's word is there. And faith receives that word, so the word does what it says. So there is no sense in which I am saying I forgive you and that is just fitting with something that's already happening. It's doing something to you itself. And this is a key move because this is part of what um, gives you assurance. Because you're not hoping that that word fits with some other reality, but you're trusting that that word is creating the reality itself. So when you so have... in essence, he's creating a, a works sacrament there, right? Um, he's saying that a word is causing this thing to happen, right? Okay. Is that what you're saying or no? Yeah, the, the spoken word. Okay, so he's saying, if I absolve you, I'm a priest and I absolve you, these words cause you to be clean. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's works-based. Mm -hmm. So to me, it sounds works-based mm -hmm. because I am speaking a word, therefore I am doing a work as a priest. Oh, okay. And he, I mean, Luther would say that would, it's just improper. Um, it's an improper definition of what a work is because all you're doing is declaring okay. the word of God to somebody else. And part of what that word does is say that works don't count for anything. Okay. Um, so when we, get away, when we do away with works, we're not doing away with human agency or the fact that God always comes to us 
through means. Um, and one of those means is me, it's you. It's the fact that um, part of what gives us certainty in the gospel is that we actually hear another human being say it to us. Um, because the gospel isn't just going to come to our heart straight by the Holy Spirit, because it's in the preaching of the gospel, the saying of it, that it actually happens. So I would, I would just say that's not, for Luther, a work, um, but it's just his commitment to saying that God always comes to you in that spoken or external word. So that's actually a new concept for me about understanding uh, medieval Catholicism. People receiving absolution from a priest in that system, would it have felt that that moment declares them forgiven? Or if it did, that it was declared because of something else that happened in, in heaven or long ago? Well, they had to do their penance first for it to be real or what? Yeah, you, I mean, and yeah. Well, like well, Luther was like, a, he was advocating a much more strong view of that moment. Mm. Yeah, extremely strong. Like, whereas these priests were saying, we're almost quoting the word of God, Luther yeah. would say the priest is declaring the word of God. Yes, exactly. In, in the old view, when I say, I forgive you, it's, it's in, a, in a way signifying something else. And that, that is where some of that uncertainty comes from, is that you're saying in the confession and the absolution that God is forgiving me, but you're not hearing that sure word from the priest himself because he's just hopefully signifying a reality that is somewhat independent of his actual words, if that makes sense. We'll, we'll, we'll come None of it makes sense to me. I don't understand anything you're saying right now. I mean, if, if you're, are you saying hypothetically this is what they were saying? Are you saying this is reality what you were saying? I, I'm losing your train, so help me with that. I, this is, yeah, this is not hypothetical. Um, and we will come back to this in the 95 Theses. But the old view, the view of penance, which he's starting to, which Luther's starting to overturn, you, I would confess my sins to you. And when you would say, I absolve you or I forgive you, that word that you're speaking wouldn't actually do the forgiving. It would point to the forgiving that God hopefully is doing. Okay. Where Luther comes along. Because of what you just did. Because of what you just did. Yeah. The confession merited the absolution. Right. Yeah. And so the word I absolve just describes what already happened. Yeah, yeah. gotcha. So there's no performance there. There's no so performance in that there. day, that's what they were saying. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Let's keep the, I need to keep the time frame separate. So I'll know how to change view it. Happened. Everything yeah. that Luther did that was so yeah. different. This is all about the word living and active actually has power gotcha. to itself, which yeah. is going to be the gospel and scripture and sola scriptura and all that. Yeah. All that's coming up. Um, and obviously this notion of promise and clearing up what that means and how the word works isn't something that we'll leave behind today. Because <laughs> it's, it's you know one of the huge keys to Luther's theology as we keep moving. So we'll keep coming back to that and hopefully getting more and more clarity about um, how he understands the external word. Um. Oh, I mean, okay, so is this, do you know if, if for Luther this was more of a, 
along the lines of, you know, how some modern-day theologians talk about, like, the theology of remembrance, you know, linking the past, the future, and the present together through the Word, so that it's, you know, its, it's grounds are the death of Christ, and its full realization is in the eschaton and all this, and it comes to you now through the spoken word, so it's all fused together. Is it more coming out of that, or is it more coming out of like this, you are once for all forgiven your sins, and now I am, you know, kind of like Christ uh, with Peter there. I don't need to clean your whole body, I'm just cleaning your feet, you know, type of thing. Is this like a, you know what I mean? Like for the sins you've done this week kind of thing, or is it like a remembrance type of thing? I mean, it is in a lot of ways for the sins you've committed that week. You do go, you do still go to confession. You know, um, the Lutheran Church retained private confession so that people could go in and unburden themselves. And it's not that if you miss confession that week that you are somehow um, out of the grace of God or whatever. But it's just this idea that because we live in a world where we will always sin, we always need to hear that word. But it's not just a word that says. You, have, you were forgiven. It's a word that says, now you are forgiven. Because we always need that word every day because for Luther, faith is something new every day. You, every day is a return to your baptism where you remember Christ's promises for you. And every, every day you're holding fast to that word. Um, so it's always something now. It's always, um, and it's, it's not to do away with what has happened, but we always need it. I don't, if that clears that up at all, I might just be muddying the water. I'm definitely tracking what you're saying about how, okay. how it is the present tense, you know, active voice of God and all that. I was, I was just trying to get to the root of, of Luther's thinking behind this rhythm efficacious. Whether it's coming out of a theology of remembrance or if it's just like it's coming out of like a need. He wants to remind or he wants to forgive people so that that week they can feel more like cleansed and then next week they feel cleansed. And, so on and so forth, but it might that might be too too developed of a, a thing at this point in the you know chronology of it all. Yeah, we'll keep that question in your mind because I think we'll build too. Because I know one thing I, I run into because I've you know I've talked to a lot of people about this sort of thing and they think, what do you mean? I am, why do I need to be forgiven? I've already been forgiven. And so that for me, what I do, I immediately open up the conversation of the whole theology of remembrance, past, present, future. It needs to be re-realized, realized again, ringed in, you know, and it helps to cleanse the conscience day to day, moment by moment. But it's always grounded in the past, you know, hoped for in the future and all that. But I'm just kind of wondering what it was coming out of in Luther's own thought. Where was he? Yeah, I, th- I, th- it's a, I think it's in the small catechism where he says, if someone decides that they say they don't need the Lord's Supper because they don't need the forgiveness granted in there. Tell them to look around and see that they're in the world, you know, grab themselves and see that they still have flesh and know that the devil's still there. Um, so it is this, this, this idea that we drown the old man in baptism, but the line is he's a good swimmer, you know? He sticks. Um, so there's always that sin to kill off and to, to be forgiven for. Yeah, that, that, that's sort of how he approaches that. I mean, that's a, that's a real practical tension, though. For someone like me who's encouraging lots of worship leaders to re- like what you're referring to, to reintroduce confession into worship, because the prevailing mentality among us evangelicals is that forgiveness is once for all. Yeah. It happened. If I confess my sin and ask for forgiveness, it's like I don't believe that really took. 
and I need to do it again. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess I, I need to hear how that theology gets developed, the once-for-allness of the cross, and the application of that in the ongoing life of the Christian who is simul justus et peccator. Yeah. And because that can be confusing for the average Christian to really take hold of the once-for-allness. And I feel like some people who are saying, why do I need to confess my sin, are concerned that they would be jeopardizing the once-for-all nature of the cross. Yeah. And we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that. I think Luther is, this is where he might chafe against sort of common evangelical theology a little bit, saying that Christ died once for all. Um, but he's not a sort of once saved, always saved person. Like this relationship can be lost. You can refuse the gift. That's why every single day you remember the promises you've received in baptism. Every single day you trust in the word. Um, and that, you know, that's, that's the thing. It's a battle. You know, like you said, every day I feel afflicted by Satan to, to let loose of this word, essentially, to stop looking to Christ. Um, so, if, yeah, faith is a battle, which is only one because the Holy Spirit's there. But That's Romans 7 all over again. Yeah. You know, it's what that is. It's just we have to fight that. Yeah. It, it's a battle, but we know who has won the battle for us, but still it's difficult. Right. Yeah. These courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one-week or semester-length courses in person at our South Florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online. By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.